Okay, so for our final interview, we are flipping the script and putting our interviewer in the hot seat. Um, so we have David Spence with us, who is the Baker Botts Chair in Law at the University of Texas School of Law and Professor of Business, Government, and Society at the Macomb School of Business. His teaching and research focus on regulation of the energy industry, including both economic and environmental regulation, and both the electricity sector and the oil and gas sector. And today we're going to discuss Professor Spence's 2017 article in the Notre Dame Law Review entitled Naive Energy Markets. The article critiques the way economics frames policy problems in energy markets and argues that that narrative frame biases their analyses towards market solutions and against regulatory solutions in ways that are not always transparent. And this is Sharon Jacobs. Shelley Welton and I are doing this as a tag team interview. Um, and so I'm going to jump in now to ask you the first question, which is that you tell a very compelling story in this piece about the ways in which neoclassical um, economists' preference for pure free markets ignores important politics um, and political and value-based considerations. So can you explain how economics as a framework biases analyses against regulation and in favor of the market? Sure. Um, so the, the article is really aimed at, um, it, go, it goes quite a ways back in time into sort of changes in economics in the t middle of the 20th century, uh, and particularly when it comes to sort of pure welfare economics and how uh, value was, came to be measured in different ways than it was before those changes took place. Um, and it's also aimed at the people, the sort of politicians and others now who sort of use that framework in ways that probably aren't, aren't entirely faithful to all the nuance and sophistication of, 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 of those models. So the root of the problem was that in the middle of the 20th century, economics be, became sort of developed aspirations to be a pure, positive science, became much more mathematical and quantitative. Um, and among other things, this eventually led to the idea that the only really scientific or observable measure of value was a person's revealed preference. The only way we could determine what, you know, how much utility they, uh, they would derive from something would be from their market behavior, their willingness to pay for it uh, in the market. And this, from that premise, you know, it's not too hard or it's fairly easy to derive the idea that a well-functioning market maximizes social welfare, the Adam Smith idea. Uh, and that as long as you get prices right and you can price all the things that you care about, um, then a market will maximize social net benefits. Um, around sort of shortly after that so-called ordinal revo revolution in economics or after World War II, let's say, there also developed these critiques from economics of government and government processes and regulation. And we often, some, in law anyway, we, we refer to these as the public choice uh, literature. Uh, and those critiques use these same sort of economic methods, formal logic, formal modeling, to uh, reach some pretty uh, negative uh, and, and cynical conclusions about, about government and you know, how well government can help uh, maximize social net benefit, right, or social welfare. Uh, and so when you have that framework, the only way we can know how much people, what people really want, whether, what they sincerely really want is by, through these market transactions, um, then, you know, if you sort of ignore some, what most people would think are some important sort of qualifiers to all that, that willingness to pay for something in the market is a function of ability to pay, for example, 
or um, that all consumers aren't necessarily behaving in ways that the, the basic economic model assumes they do, that they're rational, fully informed, and so forth. To make some of this a little bit more concrete, can you talk about in what ways this is a problem, particularly in the energy sphere, and why? Sure. So um, in the article, I go into a, a number of different ways, but the, the, so, so one of the big ways is that you know we don't, in energy markets, always get prices right in the sense that we, 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 we use that phrase. And consumers also don't often behave or often don't behave the way textbook consumers uh, behave. And so in some areas of economics, there's a, quite a rich literature of economists trying to grapple with that fact. So I'm talking about negative externalities now of economic activity. Um, and they have made, you know, reached recommendations, conclusions about how what regulatory instruments are best to handle that. But there are other parts of energy markets where there isn't nearly as much thinking about those issues. And yet, Judges, especially judges who are trained in law and economics, will sort of grab onto those ideas and try to import um, what they see as these sort of basic fundamental concepts of welfare economics into their rulings and push the system toward individual market transactions in ways that I think can steer it in, in the wrong direction. A hot issue in energy markets and electricity markets anyway right now um, or for the last few years has been the idea of dynamic retail pricing. So a lot there are economists and then there are also legal scholars, colleagues of ours who have grabbed onto these ideas who think that dynamic pricing, that is real-time movement of prices for residential and, and commercial consumers, prices that track movement in the wholesale price moment to moment to reflect scarcity conditions, that that ought to be the default requirement in retail rates. So I think our colleague Richard Pierce has written something to that effect. And uh, I meet people all the time who are advocates of competitive retail markets who make that very same argument. They like to see public utility commissions force that on consumers. Yet we know that um, at least 50% of households have a smart meter and they're served by utilities that could easily offer them if they wanted uh, dynamic pricing if they wanted it and they don't appear to want it. Right? They, they probably would prefer to pay a premium for price certainty. There are other issues as well. James made reference to underinvestment in certain kinds of big infrastructure, and I think there are reasons for that, and maybe we can go into those as we um, move forward. Let's, let's move forward into those. Okay. <laughs> um, right, so part of what you're talking yeah. about in the article is about the ways in which markets uh, undervalue some negative externalities, don't price them in. And then part of what you talk about is the way in which we don't actually build enough socially beneficial infrastructure in some cases, in cases like building major high voltage transmission for renewables. And you talk a little bit about in the article about how cost frameworks play into that. So will you talk a little bit um, about why you think it is that we're not, we're not putting in place the right kind of signals to get that infrastructure built? Sure. So in the literature on how we pay for transmission lines, that is, I should say the case law on how we pay for transmission lines, uh, the courts, particularly the Seventh Circuit, have sort of tried to really enforce uh, a beneficiary pays rule. The idea that if you, you know, the only people that should have to pay for a transmission line are those who directly benefit from it in a way we can demonstrate, preferably quantifiably. Uh, and historically, that's meant just the users of the line. Um, but 
most many people believe that that kind of network infrastructure has all sorts of positive externalities that go beyond the users. There are pe that people benefit well beyond the users. And it's really difficult to identify those people and find them and measure how much they're benefiting because in some cases they haven't been born yet, right? So I use I-35. When I-35 was, was built, nobody knew that I would ever use I-35. I was probably alive when it was built, but I was living, you know, a thousand miles away. And so there are temporal externalities and there are just geographic externalities as well, particularly in the electricity grid. You, 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 you and I can derive um, real benefits in terms of our service from a line that our utility will never use, right? And so if, we, if only those who use the line can be charged for it, then, um, then that's a problem. Now, the, to their credit, the FERC has, uh, under the Obama administration has tried to recognize that or tried to help utilities spread the cost a little more broadly, but the courts uh, applying this beneficiary pays rule have sometimes made it difficult for, for them to do that. And um, so that would be an example of a, a type of investment that has positive externalities um, that is probably undersupplied because we, we try to allocate those costs to people that, that are only the identifi identifiable right now beneficiaries. The other sort of big category of these kind of problems is the problem of, inv of investing in high capital intensive, long-lived investments generally. So big power plants, LNG terminals, those kinds of things. The, the theory would say that if the expected value of, benefit of investing in those things is positive, then people ought to invest. But in an uncertain world, um, investors don't invest, right? They, they freeze. Um, they, you, you can explain it in, in, with economic theory as sort of, you know, Op option value uh, in option value terms, but really it's an emotional reaction. It's a behavioral reaction. It's a free, it's a it's a unwillingness to act when you're afraid of loss aversion. Right. So um, so in electricity, that sometimes gets called or that's a, goes as part of something that gets called the missing money problem, which is that um, we we probably just from a price signal we don't quite incentivize enough investment in power supply, um, and Texas seems to be one of the jurisdictions that's most worried about that problem because we don't, we, we do rely primarily on the price signal to, to incentivize new construction. And so our reserve margins have been going down. And, um, you know, those of us who get a news feed on energy in Texas every day, we get some assessment of whether we're going to have enough power next year, next spring, or next summer. Um, and so we'll see. Um, there are things that other jurisdictions do to try and solve that problem, capacity markets. And frankly, Texas does stuff too. We, we juice the ancillary services market in ways that are kind of like a capacity market. Um, so those are the kinds of things I was referring to. Long-winded answer, but that was what I was, those are examples anyway. Um, so let's talk about the missing money a little bit more. Um, since you wrote this article, there have been some pretty radical new federal proposals for who is missing money and how we should get money to them. So specifically here, I'm thinking of things like uh, the Trump Department of Energy's proposal to return to cost of service rate making for nuclear and coal. And I'm wondering if you could just say a little bit about how you see these developments as either confirming or complicating the story that you tell in the article about mm -hmm. the balance of regulatory and competitive forces in markets. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I, I, most of my career I've written uh, in ways that, you know, urge trusting regulators. Um, although 
in a way, I still trust the FERC, right? The FERC has resisted these things, haven't they? Um, so, um, yeah, so the, the, as you say, the Trump administration has tried a number of different legal theories or justifications, let's call them, for subsidizing coal-fired power. Um, first, they tried to get the FERC to uh, pass a rule that would effectively do that. Um, then they flirted with using sort of national emergency legislation to do it. Um, and they're still thinking about it, although I, I think most of us, I, I don't want to speak for other people, but most of us are, are probably think it's not imminent that anything actually is going to be done. But you make a good point, which is that um, coal-fired power plants and nuclear plants are having trouble competing in competitive wholesale markets. Um, uh, I would say that this is a, that's a little bit different of a situation in that um, they're talking about keeping existing plants open rather than the sort of underinvestment in the first place kind of problem. I think, but be that as it may, politics can intervene in ways that don't make sense to me. So I, 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 don't, I don't think that my, my argument here was that that sort of thing is what we should be doing. Um, I, think, I do think that pricing reliability in the market is probably more difficult and complicated than most people think. I, I'm probably atypical in that respect. Um, but uh, I, I don't favor the, those those initiatives at all. I would add, though, that states are doing some of this as well, right? So New York and Illinois are doing the same thing with, not in a different way, with nuclear plants. Now, they want clean energy. That's part of what they want. So, um, uh, but yeah. Let's return to the point you made for a moment about trusting regulators mm-hmm. um, and kind of a comparative institutional competence question about which actors do we want find striking the right balance between markets uh, and regulation. You offer the example of regulators right here in Texas who you say have done a really nice job with this and figured out how to balance free energy markets with, for example, promoting wind energy that those markets might not have generated on their own. Um, What is it about public utility commissioners, FERC, environmental agencies, and the like that gives you confidence in their ability to find a middle ground here where legislators sometimes have failed? Yeah, so it's, I think for me, I I don't mean to uh, underplay the degree to which um, politicians, political appointees can really steer executive or independent commissions in the wrong direction. Um, but at, sort of consistent with what Sheila was saying a, a short while ago, I have uh, my experience with career uh, staff is almost um, without exception a, a really positive one. And I think that um, most of the time uh, career staff and political appointees who aren't being interfered with by a politician from above do a really good job of balancing a variety of considerations, the ones we've been talking about all day, to try and make a decision that is, at least in their view, uh, the right one, the one that represents the, the public. Um, and so uh, it's true, this is a really tough time to be making that argument, uh, because there's so much interference from above right now um, that, it, that, in my view, pushes in the wrong direction. Uh, but I think as a sort of background principle, I, I really think that most agency, most agencies are sincerely trying to execute the statutory mission that they've been given. Uh, and I think the FERC's resistance of Secretary Perry's attempt to, um, to uh, subsidize coal is, an, is another example of that. I mean, four of the five appointees at the time were Trump appointees, and they still resisted. 
Let me back away even further then um, and ask a question about a phrase that you use in the article, which is the well-informed median voter, that this should be the, the goal of our regulators and our elected government officials is to find the policy that approximates what the well-informed median voter wants. Um, and, and, you know, the middle path is just not as flashy of a slogan as free markets or even public yes. interest regulation. So, so how do we get that message across? How do you get people more excited about solutions that actually reflect that kind of middle ground preference? Yeah, I don't. That's a good question. Um, I don't. I'm not. I'm not good at finding ways to get people excited. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, the catchy. Yeah. So anyway, um, first of all, I think. Part of my faith in regulators is really a least worst theory. And I think politicians, someone said earlier that regulators were held in low esteem. They're not held in nearly as low esteem as Congress, right? And I think um, for a good reason. And, and so I think what we see now in a polarized political environment is uh, sort of swinging wildly from one side to the other. And I think delegation of decision-making authority to a an agency that has some discretion and independence and has a statutory boundary around what it does probably results in decisions that the average person would want if they understood the problem. But you raise a good question, which is that they don't understand the problem. We're all rationally ignorant about a lot of things because we don't have time to be fully informed about them. And so, um, so that creates... You know, that creates a problem because if you can draw, if, if the, what I think about a problem right now when I don't know anything about it is different from what I would have said if I knew a lot about it, um, someone can exploit that lack of knowledge. And that's sort of what politics is a lot of the times, is exploiting that lack of knowledge. And I don't have a snappy way of packaging that idea other than to say, and, I, and, I, and it's not snappy because it takes me like four pages to do it at the end of the article, which is that this is, this is the closest we come nowadays to the Madisonian ideal of deliberative decision-making that is wants, that tries to serve the public interest. A lot closer than the Senate does nowadays, and the Senate was supposed to be that institution. 